Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Game of Love podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Smith, and today I have a very, very special guest. I am so excited to have complex trauma specialist, founder of Defining Moments, and my good, beautiful, intelligent, fierce friend, Julia Prezuso. Julia, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, Jess. It's so good to see you. I am thrilled to see you. I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm giddy right now. I know. It's that's this is what we do when we're together. We get giddy. We do. Especially <laughs> when we are in blue spirit at the at the pool, <laughs> enjoying our best life in the in the jungle. I just had a moment of I, I could feel that heat and I wish I could have that Costa Rica heat because New York has just been so awful with the weather. And I could use a little heat. Yeah, I, I think we might want to escape. But first, I need you here because okay. the wisdom that you have to share with the listeners is so priceless. And I'm thrilled to have you on because you are so fiercely intelligent and the work that you do is incredible. And I have loved watching your self-care Sunday lives on Instagram. Mm-hmm. They, it's like going to church. Like you, you take me to church. <laughs> it's good for the soul. It, it really is good for the soul. And you do such a great job of sharing so much information. And when I watch you, I'm like, my friend is so fucking brilliant. It, you just blow me away. So I had to bring you on the show and, and talk about, we're going to be talking about a lot today. And I'm really mm-hmm. excited to talk about trauma. I, that sounds so weird to say. I'm excited to talk about trauma today, but we're going to... I get excited about trauma too. Most people don't. They want to run from it, but I like to go right into it. Let's get into it because when we get into it, when we dive into it, when we can heal it, resolve it and move forward, there is freedom and happiness on the other side. And so we're going to talk about trauma and how it shows up in our life, how to remedy it, how to heal it, how to move forward, how it shows up in our love life if it's unhealed. And Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about all kinds of good things. And we are just going to roll with it and see what magic will unfold. And I'm just, again, thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So let's start at the basics. Okay. Let's do a little trauma 101. Because I think trauma is such an intense word. And I think in my opinion, a lot of people have some form of trauma in their life that they may and in often cases are not aware of that are running in the background and it's unhealed and unhealthy and it's playing out in very unconscious ways. So I would love for you to describe what, what is trauma? Okay. So that's a great question. And you're right. Most people have, I would argue that everyone has experienced trauma in some form in their lives and they don't identify it as trauma. And I see this with my clients when they're sharing their stories. And I say that was a traumatic experience and they say something like it wasn't that bad or it could have been worse. And so it's important to understand that the word trauma is a re- an emotional response to a distressing event. Not all trauma will move forward into post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which many are familiar with, or complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD. And so there's three different types of trauma. There's an acute trauma, there's chronic trauma, and then there's complex trauma. An acute trauma is like a car accident. And chronic trauma is growing up in a household with alcoholic parents. And then complex trauma is layers of those types of incidences that have happened throughout life. And again, trauma does not have to lead to mental health disorders. And very often it does because it remains untreated because it's minimized. And so people tend to do this thing where they rank their trauma and, you know, we'll share a story and this happened to me and someone will have to one up it and say, well, if you think that's bad, this happened here. And so it's this continued minimization of trauma 
that causes people to suppress their feelings and not talk about it because they don't feel like what happened to them qualifies as trauma. And I think the word trauma itself just implies, you know, having cigarettes put out on your back or being hit with a frying pan in your your last relationship. So because of what we what we create with our minds when we hear the word trauma, we often dismiss others when they're sharing their traumatic responses. Does that make sense so far? It sure does. That is so powerful. I I want to take notes. I'm glad we're recording this so I can come back <laughs> yes. and listen to it. It is that is a, a beautiful way to classify it, and it's so clear and concise. And I've learned a lot in the first few minutes here. So <laughs> okay, good, good. So then, now if we evolve to this to the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder, if we were to look at the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual that we use as clinicians to help people understand what they're suffering with based on their symptoms. And so if we look at that definition, then we're going to see that trauma is something that happens to you firsthand, or you witnessed it happening to someone else, or you heard about it from someone else. So it doesn't have to happen directly to you. We can think of moments in time like 9-11. Everyone in America remembers 9-11 and can think about where they were. Some of us watched as the planes hit. Others heard about it afterwards. All of us had a traumatic experience, which means that our brains processed what was happening to our country in a way that made us fearful for our lives and feel unsafe. No matter where you were in America, you didn't feel safe that day, or maybe not for weeks afterwards. New Yorkers were not the same, right? So that is how broad trauma is, where I can't minimize you for being in Denver, and I'm better. My trauma is worse than yours because I was in New York, but yet this is what people do to each other all of the time as though our brain has some sort of trauma ranking system built in and it doesn't, it operates the same way. It always does. And I think a lot of people too, I think you mentioned this earlier that they will look at other people and go, oh, well, that person had it way worse than me. So I have no room to sit here and sulk or feel bad or even process what I have because mine isn't that big a deal. You know, that person had it really bad yet their own trauma is still present and it's still there and it's still playing itself out. Yes, because we are 7 billion people sharing all just one similar human brain, right? Everyone has the same, most of us have all the same similar looking human brains, right? So this is why where we can meet on the bridge of empathy. While I might not know your pain, I know the pain of a traumatic event. I love that you say that. I say this to my clients all the time and just to people that we might have different life situation, life experiences, and we might look different, think different, believe different. There's all these differences. But at the core, we all know what sadness feels like. We all know yes. what loneliness feels like, what joy, you know, we at the at the basis, we understand these feelings and emotions and I mean, at our core, I wish we could, you know, like push all the bullshit out and come together and say, wow, (sighs) like come together here and go, wow, you felt it too. I felt it. And I think it evens the playing field and creates a lot of empathy and compassion. Correct. Because we are one species, right? We're a complicated species because we have this thing called language and this vocabulary that sometimes makes it difficult for us to recognize the fact that we are the same species. Your body goes through the same process as mine when it's faced with this stimulus that's traumatic. And so I can meet you on that bridge of understanding, and I don't have to outrank you or outdo you. I can just validate your human experience, and that will soothe your soul all by itself instead of saying, well, you know, it could have been worse, right? That's another famous one. Well, you know, it could have been worse then. And then I I don't remember who it was. I think it was Eckhart Tolle who says this. Why is it that somebody has to have it worse in order for us to feel better? How is that? So good. He is so brilliant. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we need to stop 
ranking our trauma and just acknowledge trauma. Like you have trauma. I have trauma. We all have trauma and just let it be as it is. Validate the emotion, validate the experience. When someone has the courage to share with you, and sometimes, you know, some of you out there are oversharing because of your trauma, and we can talk about that too. But if someone shares an experience with you, right away, also as humans, we have this tendency to want to fix whatever it is that we're hearing. And that means that we're not actually listening. So if we can just instead practice some active listening with each other, and some mirroring of what we're hearing the other person say. So I share a traumatic event and you say, that must have been so scary. And I say, that was so scary. And then I move along, right? But what we tend to do is say, wow, if you think that was scary, you got to hear this one. And then all of a sudden now my existence is minimized and I feel like an idiot because my story is not as bad as so-and-so's. And that they were so excited to share their story. It's like, I'm still in that my story right courage. now. Yeah, that they had the courage. And that's what I'm noticing with my boot campers that I've been doing trauma boot camps lately. And the boot campers, day one, we share stories. Cameras off on the Zoom call, just complete vulnerability. I'm taking notes. And it's almost always one person will say, well, I know it's not my story is not as bad as who just spoke before me. And that's exactly what keeps people mentally ill is that they don't have their experiences validated. That is, I believe, the end of human suffering is the validation of your emotion, of your experience. I matter. My story matters is what you convey when you validate someone's experience instead of trying to talk them out of how they feel or tell them why it isn't so bad or how it could have been worse. I love that. And I... I think it's so beautiful that you do your boot camps and I I can't imagine the the powerful uh stories that are shared and transformations and in my work over the years something that I've loved in doing my retreats and my group coaching is when you bring people together and I have I call it the sacred circle and when people come together with the sacred circle and I lay out the the format of it and I only let one person speak at a time and nobody else is allowed to process them, everybody else has to be quiet and just allowing somebody to have space to be heard, to speak, to let whatever comes out and nobody is sitting there commenting, saying things, trying to work on them. It is so powerful what happens. It it blows my mind every time. When you just hold space. Just hold space. Just hold space for someone to be a human being who is suffering. Yes. Without being shamed. Right. No shame. Just no shame. No judgment. No shame. Oh, I love that. All right. Why is it important for people to be aware of their trauma? So the importance, understanding that Trauma gets suppressed when experiences and feelings are minimized. So if you are raised in a dysfunctional family whereby maybe your your parents are either alcoholics or they're mentally ill and untreated or there's somehow there's neglect or there's abuse of some sort, um, you spend your entire life in that environment. That's called complex chronic trauma. So now it's every day, day in, day out, there's some sort of abuse that's imposed on you. This becomes part of your normal operating system. And many of the rules that you learned in that environment become your subconscious or your unconscious programming. And that unconscious programming that was taught to you is toxic. And when we don't become aware of how that programming has impacted us and how it's contributing to the way that we're showing up in relationships, we're going to find things, very, very specific patterns that emerge in terms of very often people will say, I feel like I've been dating the same person with a different name. And that's exactly what you're doing is you're repeating the pattern. And when it comes to love specifically, when it comes to romantic relationships, your success rate or failure or ability to participate as a healthy adult is rooted in your childhood, 
romantic relationships is rooted in your childhood because you learn about them from your primary caretakers. So you receive your first, um, you know, rules of the game from them. And one of the questions I always ask during a clinical intake is, describe your parents' relationship with each other when you were growing up. Not with you. I want to know how they behaved with each other because this is very telling as to why your relationships are not working or why you're showing up in codependent relationships or why your relationships turn out to be narcissistically abusive or there's violence, there's domestic violence or intimate partner violence that's happening. You're getting beaten or you're beating your significant other because it's happening to men and women. So this always has roots in childhood because somewhere along the way, the programming that was given to you is that love equals violence, love equals name calling, love equals hitting. And so while as a conscious, rational adult, you can say, I don't believe in that. And that is absolutely wrong. The unconscious script is in the fix is in is what I say. And so if it happens in your relationship, you're more likely to overlook that behavior or the red flags because you were raised by red flags and you've learned to survive at the hands of red flags. And so that is familiar because you have learned to function in dysfunction. You don't even see them as red flags. Correct. They're not red flags. They're just... That's just how people behave. That's just how people behave. And right. You know, in working with my single clients and seeing their difficulties in their their dating lives, you know, they put a lot of pressure on themselves sometimes. They don't feel like they're good enough, that they're, you know, they're deficient in some way, shape, and form. Or they will look at other people and they're like, oh, you know, women are hoes and guys are all assholes. There's not good people out there. And so there's just a lot of like ick around, a lot of negative energy around their their love life. And when we zoom out and look at the the total picture of who they are, their life experience and where they come from and start to backtrack everything, it is just, it blows my mind every time that their present dating life is equal to their childhood and their, their oh, relationship sure. with their parents. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just clear. And so I'm, I'm loving that we're talking about this topic today. Because it is yeah, so important. part of the healing. Go ahead. Yeah, it's because we have to get it healed before we can move We have forward. to see it. We have to be able to see it. And I think this is where I'm going next is that it's unconscious. You don't even know you're doing what you're doing until someone brings this to your attention or you have the courage to enter therapy because life is not working, because your relationships are not working. Or, you know, let's let's focus on 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 toxic relationships for the sake of this conversation, right? So toxic relationships or narcissistically abusive relationships are filled with gaslighting and manipulation. And oftentimes even that manipulation is unconscious because it's a learned behavior. So this is where we go into personality traits and disorders, right? Specifically the cluster B group. So if you are out there recovering from a toxic relationship, you and your ex are probably part of this personality group called the cluster B. And they are the dramatic group, the histrionic, the borderline, the narcissist, and the antisocial, the worst of the worst. They are the result of trauma because narcissism breeds narcissism. That's why it's so ingrained. This is why they have no empathy. They're never sorry. They're not apologetic because they honestly don't believe there's anything wrong with their behavior. It's been passed down to them, down the generational pipeline. And this is just how everybody on in my family behaves, men and women, right? And so when you have poor insight and limited um, understanding of your emotional blind spots, then your relationships are chaos. And they're also, the other part of the, the childhood is the attachment to your primary caretaker. And so we know that we have an attachment style based on how we were raised and based on that connection to the primary caretaker. 
if the primary caretaker was not a secure attachment where they went away, but they always came back. When you were in distress, they answered your call. It was consistent and reliable. It's a secure attachment. Finding a secure attachment today is very challenging because of so much dysfunction in upbringings that has not been addressed. And so many adults out there are looking to date and they have insecure, anxious, avoidant, or otherwise disorganized attachment styles. So they meet somebody else who has a similar attachment style, and then they engage in the dance of their childhood by stepping on their wounds of abandonment and rejection. Mm -hmm. And they just unconsciously repeat their childhood wounds until one of them says, let's go to therapy. And then I shine a little light in there. And I say, that's a pattern that you're engaging in. I wonder what would happen if A happens. Instead of doing B, we introduce this variable C. And now we're changing the pattern and you get a choice as an adult on what type of attachment style you're going to be. I may have been raised as a disorganized attachment, but I am absolutely a secure attachment today because I've identified those behaviors that were just not working in relationships. I love that you say that because with the, with the attachment styles, with the love language, with um, astrology, whatever it is, you know, we have all these cool uh, tools to use, you know, with our human behaviors is that I think a lot of people can identify how they are, but it takes a stronger more evolved person to be able to switch that up, to do things differently. Right. And I think a lot of people get stuck in this, well, I'm a Leo and this is how I operate. Or, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm, yeah. I'm an anxious attached and that's just how I right. am. My love language is, <laughs> right. is uh, you know, acts of service. And it's like, er, it's this hard line in the sand. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, can we, can we try something a little different? Can, can we, can we try, you know, being outside of that, that box that we are so comfortable in? The answer to that is yes, we can. So we now know that the brain can produce plasticity, neuroplasticity. So when you're born, your brain is just a, a blank slate and the environment and your caretakers are mapping it and printing all the rules for the way the world looks. So your plasticity is being used up. And by the time you're 25, there's really no plasticity left. Every, everything has been taken. So you're very much rigid. This is the way it is. This is the way I am. It's black or white. I'm a Capricorn. Of course I behave this way, right? So that is what the problem is, is because the brain has no more plasticity available to create a new pathway that says, if this, we can try that. And so things like meditation and therapy to introduce new pathways is possible. We know that the brain never stops wanting to seek information. It's contingent on the person whether or not they want to stay in that position, in that fixed state of I'm a, I'm a Capricorn who was raised in an anxious avoidant attachment style what you see is what you get, right? Right. Or this idea of, okay, anxious avoidant attachment has these feature or, or cluster B personality traits include A, B, C, and oh, okay. Oh, so this is a, all right. And the antidote to that is this. And while my brain, when faced with that stimulus may always want to go left because that pathway is like an, a Roman road. It's 2,000 years old. It's been there. It's been used. Even though it leads to, to dis dysfunction, you know it. And then you get a therapist who introduces you with another idea. And you're like, well, I can kind of, I'm reluctant to, but I can't. And if you keep going, eventually what happens is when the brain is met with that stimulus, it's going to take the new pathway. And then with time, the old pathway is going to die. It'll it will no longer be an option or you'll become so self-aware and attuned that you'll chuckle a little bit and you'll say, yeah, I used to um, go through an entire bottle of Tito's when this happened and now I'm going to yoga. Right. 
I am a Virgo, as you know, and one of the reasons why we vibe so well. But I, several years ago, when I was big into astrology and doing a lot of research and I looked at the Virgo traits and I'm like, really Virgos are not that sexy. Like they're very analytical and they're structured and they can be nitpicky and like, and I was like, I was very Virgo. And I'm like, I don't like this. Like, I don't, I don't want to be known as this nitpicky, like critical of everyone and myself. So I'm like, okay, these, I did what you said. I'm like, Hey, these are the Virgo traits. Which one do I assign value to that? I want to keep. And what do I want to change and do differently and try things on? I want to be more cancer-like and be more loving. I want to be a little more Leo and a little more out there. And I, I think the example you gave of just looking outside the box, looking at other, other ways of being and trying them on, just go go try them on. And knowing most importantly, that that's what we have. We have a decline mental state trending in our world, right? It's like we're born and then life is like this and this is retirement and it's like death, right? That we're just dying. And instead what we know is like the brain is always learning. So instead of retiring, you can just repurpose your life and find a new meaning for what you want to do because your brain, and I've asked doctors this often because I'm like, is it, do I, do I put the same amount of effort in the elderly patients that I do in my, my 20 something year olds. And and he says, absolutely. Because the brain is capable of neuroplasticity. And that makes me so excited. So if a client is willing to look at it, they can have this post-traumatic growth experience or what we also call, well, I call it the post-traumatic blow up, right? So you can have a post-traumatic blow up. Once you realize that this is what I'm doing this is what's happening in my brain. And these are the results that it's producing. And I can now choose an alternative outcome if I'm willing to learn. However, most people, they enjoy just being able to wear the Capricorn, wear the trauma survivor, wear mental illness even. Well, I'm just bipolar. This is just how I am. There's nothing I can do about it. And that's not true either, right? There's treatment. And the brain can recover and the brain can heal. And most importantly, you're responsible for that healing process based on what you're willing to do. And the brain learns three ways by what happens to it, by what what it, it experiences and by repetition. This is why when we were late a hundred years ago in school, they would make us write on the chalkboard. I I will will not not be late late 100 times. Why? Because repetition was a way for our developing brains to understand that we cannot be late, right? This is why we did it that that way, that repetition. So through repetition of new behaviors, you can create a new neural pathway and have a post-traumatic blow up where, yes, I have endured these atrocities in my life that I never thought I would survive. And here I am living my best life that I never thought was possible, but I gave myself permission to stop living in this box that I labeled Capricorn trauma survivor, mentally ill person, because then you live within the confines of your box. That's right. I had a a client who was also a dear friend of mine that went on one of my retreats to Costa Rica several years ago and she came forward and shared some heavy, horrific trauma and trauma that I wasn't even aware of as one of her best friends. And it was, it was hard to hear. And she later confided in me and said, Jessica, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I can be in this world and be a good person and have this hanging over me. And it just dawned on me. I'm like, think of it as a Girl Scout. Think of this thing that happened as an incident that gave you so much strength and courage and resiliency and all these these beautiful, beautiful gifts that came from this horrific thing. And you just take that and it's like a a badge on a sash. It's your Girl Scout badge. Like you survived your father molesting you. Like, holy shit. Like that, that's, that's huge. In spite of what happened. Yes. You are still standing, still going, still still putting one foot in front of the other, still not giving up, still not quitting. 
Yes. Right. And I, I want to run this by you since you're the expert in this, that since we can't go back and delete the trauma, right? The trauma is there. It's important to get to a point where there's no emotional or, or a lessened um, emotional energetic charge to it. So you can get to the place that you say, I was molested by this person and I had eggs for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And then you could just, you, it's a, you can really you live with yes. that. That you don't have a trauma response trauma response when you recall your trauma, right? Mm. And so this is where, you know, more information on this beautiful brain of ours is so important, right? So when we were in our mother's womb, nobody was worried about our brain development. It was, they were looking for our heartbeat on those sonograms, right? The heartbeat was there. The baby was okay. That's all that was necessary because the baby was growing in a boundary environment and safe. As soon as we were birthed into this world and this boundaryless world, now the brain is like, oh shit. And specifically the limbic system, the limbic system of the brain is fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. It's the home of your emotional system. And it's only concerned with, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And this is the part of the brain that we're operating from until we hit adolescence and the prefrontal cortex where the manager is then beginning its development. And the manager is able to say, you're safe, you're safe. So when you get triggered, that's your limbic system doing Mm. what it's supposed to do and say, hey, we're not safe. The brain doesn't know the difference between whether we're in 1993 or 2021. It doesn't know the difference between reality and fantasy. It doesn't know the difference between physical and emotional abuse. It responds the same way through the limbic system, which creates this hypervigilant response in us. And we think we're, we're not okay. So when that prefrontal cortex development was going on, if there wasn't good enough emotional coaches in our environment as caretakers, now the communication between the manager and the limbic system is, is not very good. And the, the manager is responsible for Emotion regulation, body regulation, fear modulation, empathy is in the prefrontal cortex. Motivation. When you have low motivation and you feel like a piece of shit, it's because you're depressed. Your brain can't do what it's supposed to do. It's not because you're a piece of garbage. It's because your brain is lacking what it needs in order to get up and have the motivation to do something. So understanding that will help you. So when you have a recall of a memory, of a traumatic experience that you know how to come back home to yourself and say, you're safe right now. And through repetition of simply self-holding techniques and repeating that you're safe, you are commanding the limbic system and you're saying, we're good. Thank you, brain. Thanks for always, you know, thank you, brain. You're so, so smart. Always looking out for me. Uh, We're good. We're at home right now. I know you think it's happening again, but it's not happening again. Everything is okay. And then the alert, it'll, it'll soothe itself. The other thing to be aware of is so simple guys is, is your heart rate. Your heart rate is so telling of what's going on inside of you. So especially in marriage counseling, I use pulse oxes when I'm in session with them, or I make them order them before we start sessions. Because if you hit 90 beats or more per minute during a conversation, you're not out on the treadmill where you should be at 150 or 160 on your heart rate. If you're sitting in bed, I have a client who laying in bed, her husband's in another room on the Zoom call. They both have pulse oxes on. She's at 120. He's at 58. Oh my gosh. Okay. 120 means that her prefrontal cortex, her manager has gone offline because after 90 beats per minute, the prefrontal cortex is like, hey, we're in danger. I'm going to shut down now. And the limbic system is like, I'm ready. I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to fight. So what I've taught my clients is watch your heart rate and communicate that to your partner because there was another couple whereby The husband wanted to talk about it immediately and she needed space in order to gather herself because if you provoke someone who is already emotionally flooded, they are operating from the limbic system. They are basically animals. Mm -hmm. So now you're going to get verbally assassinated. 
Now you're going to slam doors. Now things are going to escalate and nothing good can come out of it because the manager is offline. The ability to communicate and rationalize is shut down so that you can fight the perceived threat, but there isn't one. It's just your partner who didn't do the dishes again. So being able to say, I'm, I'm feeling upset right now because very often trauma survivors are dissociated and have a disconnect from their body. They're very um, delayed with attunement to their body, being home in their skin. They're, imagine floating, you're grabbing them by the ankle and putting them back in their body because they can dissociate as a survival mechanism very quickly. So when you get emotionally flooded, you will dissociate and you might react in a way that's disproportionate to the present moment and damage your relationship. So understanding how this human body works, now the wife is able to say, I'm at 112. Would you like to continue the conversation or can I go and take a, 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 some space right now? Yep. And he's like, whoa. Ooh. Like, right? definitely. Like, do you need to go to the spa? Do you, do you need a nap? Are you hungry? You what? need at least 30 minutes. The brain needs 30 minutes to come back down to normal. And you know, in relationships, it's so often that we want to talk about it in the here and now, because we're afraid that it's going to get swept under the emotional carpet. And we're never going to talk about this again. And that's why I always say, define the time. I'm feeling upset right now. Can we talk about this in a couple of hours after dinner? Can we talk about this on Saturday when I come back from yoga? Can we, and define the time recognizing that I'm upset right now. And this is where it's important to understand that we're human beings and how this thing operates is going to determine how this conversation goes. If your partner is upset and visibly upset, both of you, and if not, at least one of you needs to be the one that says, I can see you're getting upset. I love you so much. Let's take a time out. I, I think it's so respectful. It's respectful of oneself. It's respectful of the other person and of the relationship just to, like you said, that one person to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. I love you. I know you love me. We are like in this together. Your heart rate is high. You're, you know, I'm upset or whatever. It's, it's flooding. You're flooded. Right. And I think it's just so critical to, you know, we all, we all know that communication is critical, but to have kindness with our communication, compassion and be like, whoa, I love you so much. Why don't, why don't you go shopping? I'm going to go to the gym. Let's just take some time out and then let's come together and let's figure this out. And I love you so freaking much. Yes. That would be ideal if you were attuned to your body and you can tell what's happening and you have just a basic knowledge of how your brain functions. This two and a half pound control center on top of your shoulders is going to determine how that conversation goes. And if you don't know, this is why I, I dedicated a section of my book to the brain, because if you don't understand how your brain functions, then you think that the person is just being an asshole or they don't want to talk about it, or they're just dismissing you instead of being conscious of the fact that they are emotionally flooded. And this is where the childhood wounds will come up. The reason why I can't give you that space is because I'm afraid you're never going to come back. And now the abandonment wounds get triggered instead of being able to say, and the other thing about that too, is that they don't understand that there is a difference between withdrawal and space, because what they've learned is that when there was tension in the family, that somebody would leave and maybe they never came back. I mean, we, we see right. this in movies. We hear this, especially from our parents' generation. They would get in a fight, the door would slam, the car would leave and wouldn't see dad for the rest of their lives. That's right. Or I have a client, you know, in his fifties, he can still hear the tires oh my gosh. spinning as his mother took off. She came back, but she had taken off in such a way that he can still hear the gravel and the dirt kicking up from the way that her, her tires went. So then, now you get flooded, and then you get hijacked by that emotional flashback of mommy leaving. Mm. And now your behavior is of a child desperate for their mommy not to leave, and you have lost touch with reality because that woman is not your mommy. Mm -hmm. And you need to give her the space. And so now, as the person 
that needs the space, you have to be able to communicate that. And that looks a little something like, I'm feeling upset right now. I don't want to speak to you. I love you. And I just need some time to get my thoughts together. Instead of eye rolling, snickering, fuck you, and then walking away, which perpetuates their attachment or their childhood wound. So when you know and your partner has shared their story with you, you're responsible for the way that you behave because you want to create a secure attachment in that relationship whereby if you had to leave for three months because that's what we're called for, your person would not be dysregulated while you're away because you provide them with the security of knowing, I'm really upset right now. I love you so much. Just give me the rest of the afternoon and we'll come back together instead of shutting down and turning around and walking away from them, getting in your car and not texting for three days. Like when you do that, you perpetuate the childhood wound and you cause that distress. And so I'm not saying that you have to be your significant other's therapist. I'm saying that you have to be situationally aware and self-aware of how your behavior impacts the person that you love. That is so good because so often in our modern day relationships, it's like, that's your shit. That's your business. You need to take care of it. I need you to do this. And it's very dismissive. And for you to say that, like that struck me at my core. It's like, no, we are all responsible. Are we not responsible? If my significant other shares that their mother left them when they were four, and I have this information and I know this is a big wound for my significant other. If there is a, a fight and I choose to walk away in a manner that mimics abandonment versus asking for space with my words, mm. then I am hurting you. And I'm not saying that it's intentional because again, you know, and this is where I, I, I just want to be careful with my, my words here because I don't want to make excuses for malignant behavior. I don't want to make excuses for narcissistic personalities. I don't want to make excuses for the borderline personality disorder, the toxic behaviors. I'm not making excuses for it. And I'm saying that these behaviors are very often unconscious, that it's unconscious manipulation that's happening. And when you bring, this is the game changer, is what happens when you bring that behavior to a person's attention is going to be the game changer. Now, if they react and say, well, you do blah, blah, blah in defensiveness. Now, you know, you're working with somebody who doesn't want to look at their shit. They want to stay under the veil. They want to stay veiled and they want to stay in denial. If you have someone that says, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I was doing that. I can see how that might have made you feel trapped. And I'm going to be more mindful of that in the future. I'm going to be more mindful. I'm not perfect. I might step in my shit a couple more times, but I'm going to continue to have that on my radar because nine times out of 10 with your partners, it's not maliciousness. It's mindlessness. Ooh. It's not that they wake up in the morning and they're like, how am I going to mess up? Right. I'm going to screw up her today. today. I'm going to be the biggest asshole. <laughs> yes. I'm feeling like a fight. Right? Nobody, Most people are not doing that, right? But through mindlessness and being on autopilot, not being attuned to the present moment, being in our heads. I did this the other day where I, I was called from downstairs and I was like, what? And then I was checked and I said, oh, I'm, yes, because I was mindless, dissociated in my work. And when I heard my name calling, I was not present in the moment. I was in my work. And I reacted with what annoyance because I was being disturbed and not conscious of who I was speaking to. And that who the person I was speaking to, I happen to care about very much. And I never want them to feel like I'm being disrespectful. Right. So I said, my bad. Let me try that again. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love that. I think it's so important for people Seek to understand. Curiosity. Curiosity. Understanding yourself, being curious about yourself, curious about your partner, curious about your relationship, how you come together. I think that is huge, 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 huge. Curiosity, concern, and compassion. 
That is our approach to our loved ones, not criticism, defensiveness, judgment. It's curiosity. Help me understand, help me understand. why you're feeling that way. Um, help me. I'm having trouble understanding. Can you help me get on the same page? Right. And just remembering that relationships are nothing but negotiations and compromises. It's a dance. It is a dance. Right. And when you approach that dance with that compassion, with that curiosity, with that concern, the energy shifts. So even if someone is talking to a family member or, or whomever that there's tension with, as soon as you create this, the space that is bringing people together, that's loving, that's like, wow, I, I really, I, I really want to know what's going on. Cause I see you're upset. Can you yes. share with me what's happening? Yeah. It can drastically shift the, the nature of the relationship and the conversation. Cause then people are like, wow, this person actually normally would be coming at me with some like defensiveness and like snarkiness and like, whoa. Oh, you're too sensitive. Oh, just get over it. Mm -hmm. but Why are you so emotional? Now it's like, right? oh, criticism wow. and judgment. Wow. This person really is, is curious about how I'm feeling. And then the energetic charge just like, whoosh. yes, because it's love, right? Cause love equals curiosity, compassion, concern, mutual respect. Now, no matter what they taught us now, this is what love equals. This is the new narrative. This is the new script. This is the new pathway in the brain of your definition of love. Despite what you have experienced in the past, which was not loving, you now know that that was not love. And therefore, going forward, you will not overlook or otherwise dismiss behaviors that are not consistent with curiosity, concern, compassion, respect, positive regard, encouragement, support. That's love. I love that. And I would encourage everyone who's listening right now to sit down and do that exercise, rewrite your script, redefine yes. love. Cause as soon as you said that girl, my heart was like burning, like, Oh, that's, it's no longer, yes. it, it's no longer the, the love equals violence. Love equals disrespect. Whatever they taught you, whatever they taught you, right. you can now say, okay, no violence was violence. That was not love. Neglect That's was neglect. Love, right? It was not love. And you can start to clearly see that and then shift and to redefine it. And just, I'm going to do that today. I'm going to sit down with my journal and I'm going to redefine love. Yeah, that was, that's an exercise that comes from this outstanding coach named Richard Brannon. It's a love exercise where he creates three columns on a sheet of paper and writing it down with pen and paper is always the recommendation because it speaks right to the subconscious. Column number one, all of the things that I love about love, having a person, not being alone, sex, whatever it is that you love about love. And the middle column is what are my current and past beliefs about love? And this is where you stack that thing that you learned in your childhood, in your previously toxic relationships. This is where you, where you, where you really dig deep. You get down and dirty with this one. Spend an hour sitting down with this exercise and digging deep on what is the belief system that I hold around love. Yep. And then in the third column is what is healthy love? And then that is the new narrative. And you say, well, I now believe that love is mutual respect and love is not name calling. It's support and it's encouragement and it's kindness. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't see these things, which then act as my standards, when I go into relationships again, then I put boundaries up that say, I'm sorry, that's just not for me. And then I get out of there. Yep. So I no longer stay. I can't prevent myself from meeting another bad apple. That's not something that we can do. They don't have any labels on their foreheads. Here's the one thing that we can do for those of you that are in your post-traumatic blow up and you're afraid to go out there and date again. The only way to implement your new rules is in vivo. You have to get out there and try so that you can come up against what is preventing you from getting the love that you want so that you can see, I have a hard time saying no when I don't want to do something. When a man asks me, 
I always say yes when I really need to be saying no. I'm not honoring my no. What is that about, right? Now you come back to therapy and you say, this is what happened when I went on that date. I was completely operating from people pleasing. I was trying to be somebody that I'm not. I wasn't being authentic. And now that is how we begin to even help you grow and develop even more to solidify these new rules around love and your standards and implementing your boundaries. Because the reason why you got into those relationships to begin with is because there was no boundaries in place. And now that you are conscious and self-aware, you're not doing that anymore. And it's, it's training too. So when people are going through this process and creating these new pathways and these new behaviors and these new habits that are healthy, when you're out dating, you can try these things out. And, you know, you're, you know, if you, if you screw up and the person's like, wow, you're a hot mess, or that's like such a turnoff, then you didn't, you know, you don't have a lengthy relationship or a lot invested that you can move on. No harm, no foul. Right. And then if you do, and the person is your person, they'll just look at you and say, Oh, okay. You know, and they'll keep going. So it's right. It's, it's training grounds, training ground. And you can, and you can baby step it too. You know, there might be little things like, I'm going to try this out this time. I'm going to try communicating a little different this time. And, and that's what has made my dating life incredible and has turned me into a good dating coach because I looked at my love life really as an experiment. And I know the men that have dated me probably do not want to hear that. <laughs> right. But it's, sorry, guys. Sorry. And thank you. And you're welcome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it was a process of like, okay, I'm going to try this this time with this date. I'm going to, I'm going to try this way of communicating. I'm going to share this about myself. I'm going to wear something a little bit different. I'm going to, you know, there's just so many people, I think like like bust out of the gates and say, I want to get out of my comfort zone. I'm really going to put myself out there. I'm going to, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's just baby step it a little bit. Just try these little, little things and see how that feels. And then if it works, do it again. Right. Like you said, keep, keep going down that path. And if it doesn't, you just like no harm, no foul. You, you try something new. In addition to doing, spend more time observing, mm. spend more time noticing your behaviors, spend more time observing you in the context of dating. Are you making eye contact or in your, are you in your head thinking about how you look? Are you insecure in this moment? Are you feeling threatened by who they are? Are you sizing yourself up? What is observe? Be more observant. Be more curious towards yourself. And when you go, it's what I say to my clients that are newly dating, you're not dating for the one. I hope that you find them too. You're dating to find you. Go find you in this process because your identity needs to be reformed after the post-traumatic blow up. You are redefining your identity. You are getting to know yourself again. This is why you're out there dating. If you find the one, two, great. But you're the one that I'm looking for. The relationship with you is what will evolve from this courage to go out there and meet other people. Yes. Being observant of you is so important. And I always encourage my clients when they're on a date, take some nice deep breaths and being present in the, in the conversation is always, always important. And there might be lulls in the conversation or maybe a bathroom break that you could just scan your body. Like how, how am I feeling right now? How's my body feeling? Is there any tightness? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've been, I've been cramping. Like my, my left hip is tightening up or, you know, I'm feeling like just tightness in my chest or I, I feel like I've been talking my for heart six hours. My been 110 the whole time. Right. I've been on dates where my heart rate will just not get, I can't get my heart rate down. And then I'm like, oh, okay, um, you probably shouldn't have a drink because you're already flooded. And so uh, let's just, let's just, just have a conversation because you're flooded. Your limbic system is what's operating. This could be horrible. <laughs> this could be horrible. So next time, ladies and gentlemen, you are on a date. Wear, wear your Fitbit, your, your Apple watch. Wear your Fitbit, people. Know where you're at emotionally because you are disconnected, especially if you're a trauma survivor. The likelihood of of body attunement, not body awareness is very limited. 
And so you don't know. And that's part of what you can do too, is when you're having getting ready for your dates, have conversations with yourself. When you feel that anxiety where you say something like, hey, I don't know how this is going to go tonight, but I promise you this. If you feel uncomfortable in any way, shape, or form, I'm going to get us out of there. I promise. That's right. I, I right? got us. I got us. I got us. Yes. I got us. And then that's how your inner parts are like, yay, she's got us. Yes. And with that, I, I do that, like my, my pre-date protocol, I do a lot of that self-soothing and it's like, okay, why are you feeling nervous? Oh, mm-hmm. I really like this guy and I want it to work. Okay. Um, and just keep, I will just sit there in the mirror while I'm putting on my makeup and I'll ask questions and take deep breaths. And also I am a huge fan of, I will pep talk myself so hard. I will sit there in the mirror and I'll be like, you are, you are that bitch. You are so amazing. Like I talk to myself, like I'm, you know, my own biggest fan and you should, yes, we all should. And I notice then my anxiety level will go down and then my authentic self will come up and out. Yes. And then the vibrant, the vibration that you're on, right attracts them to you even more. Yep. Right. That that's what happens. I have to pick him up because it's thundering so bad. Oh, so and he's bad. having like such a he's having such a meltdown right now. So that's just it, right? It's that when you can drop all of that, you will operate authentically. And that authenticity is what's going to attract people to you more often than not. It's the light inside of you, the genuineness, the connectedness that you emit that makes people want to gravitate towards you. So I love when you say that you're your own biggest cheerleader, because it's not, it's not a place of arrogance, guys. It's a place of saying, of course, people want to date you. You're amazing. Look at what you've overcome. And you're so kind and you're so thoughtful and considerate. Of course, he's going to want to date you. And if he doesn't, I don't know what his problem is, right? It's not you. And since, since you got yourself, if, if he's, or she is the one great, that's so exciting. If he or she is not the one that's cool too. Cause you got you, you got you. Right. You got you Oh, for the rest of your life. Forever. It's going to be you and you for the rest of your life. And so that's why I say that relationship with you is the one that we're looking to solidify so that you can be whole when you go out there and date. You are whole and not a half and not looking to, for someone to fill you because you're not empty. You're full. You are whole. Julia, you are incredible. <laughs> really, this episode is so good. I don't always go back and re-listen to episodes, but I'm going to go back and re-listen to this one because oh, the nuggets of wisdom that you dropped upon us, dang. Thank you. And that's my girl. <laughs> so, <laughs> And her corgi. And her corgi. Her anxious corgi. Please tell the audience what you're up to because you have some great things going on. You have your boot camps. You have your book that's coming out soon. Yes. Yes. So I'm really excited about boot camp. Boot camp is an eight week. I call it boot camp because it's pretty intensive. I cover a lot of ground in eight weeks. It's a trauma recovery program where you're going to learn some really solid skills about self-regulation, emotion regulation, and understanding how to process what has happened so that you can become whole. So I do eight-week boot camps. The next one will be on May 11th. There's three more seats available. Um, And my book is called It's Your Mother's Fault, Now What? is going to be published on Kindle on Mother's Day. So, and then the paperback will be available on Father's Day because (laughs) it's his fault too, guys. And now what? Because at the end of the day, no matter who taught you the dysfunctional behaviors and the dysfunctional patterns, you're the only one capable of changing it. So Mother's Day Kindle version, Father's Day paperback, it's your mother's fault. I worked really hard on that. And I'm really hoping that I put together everything that you would need to know about how your mental health functions and operates and how to create more of an optimal, just um, brain functioning, focus, concentration, less anxiety, depression. I cover relationships and attachments and 
and the healing process. So I'm very excited about that project. And then you know you can find me on Instagram at my defining moment where you know I try to try to share some some captions of wisdom on a daily basis for the audience to give them something. Yes, you do. I love your Instagram. It's inspirational, powerful, <laughs> and and fun too. Because you have and great- some signs inappropriate. <laughs> some, you know, uh, that's a requirement as a friend, honey. You have to be just a a little or a lot inappropriate at times. So <laughs> yeah, right. Agreed. Julia, thank you so much for coming on the Game of Love. It was just such an honor to have you. Love you love so much. You. Thanks for having me. Anytime I'm here well, to answer your mental health I would, concerns. I would love to have you back for a part two, part three. Do it. I, I would love that. So thank you so much, Julia. You're welcome. Honey. And thank you to all of you who have tuned in. Uh, I wish you well and follow me on Instagram, jessicasmith.love so you don't miss a second. And get out there and love each other. <laughs>